I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Thursday, and you are watching AM to DM. Why? 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 Why America? Why? Why New York? Why? <laughs> Bill de Blasio has officially launched his 2020 presidential campaign, and we are thrilled. Tired. We're tired. <laughs> We're tired. I just. Oh. 23, baby? 20, Bill de Blasio is the 23rd person to announce they are running for the Democratic presidential nomination. My God, uh, 17 for the Republican primary in 2016, we learned, if you're counting. Lisa Tazi, it's like doing like long division at this point, damn it. <laughs> Carry the goddamn one. Lisa Tazi <laughs> tweeted, <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. Lord, give me the confidence of a tall, white mayor of New York City who has a school, housing, and transit mess on his hands and thinks, yeah, I should spend time running for president. Beautiful tweet, Lisa. That is a fire tweet right there. Vibrant that tone. is the black-ass bottom line with why I'm so irritated with Bill de Blasio. Amen. He's, uh, he's got that tall person energy. Run him up. Just out here wild. He just, he just looked at himself in the mirror and was like, uh, you know what? I think I could go for it. Listen, and we're going to have a substantive conversation eventually. about this as well. But there's just so much... If you are a New Yorker, especially, the issues with the MTA, the issues with housing in this city, the issues that have happened under the de Blasio administration, you want him to maybe get to work a little harder on this great city instead of go out and try to fix everything else. Justice for groundhogs. I mean, but for real though. <laughs> You know, but because listen, I we know, and we're going to talk about. We know why people run for president, not just to win, mm -hmm. but because you draw national attention. You can get book deals. Yeah, well, you can deals. be one of those annoying white people on CNN who just get talk a about things you don't know. About. Totally, yeah. You might fuck around and end up being president, as we have seen. I think that's kind of how we yes, got to. That, yep. that kind of happened. Yep. But what it also means is that, of course, it divides your attention. Mm. Um, and sorry, you're not the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. You're the mayor of New York City, and there is a lot going on, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, wait a minute, you you can't be in two places at the same time. So that's my issue. I understand why it's good for him. You're right. I don't know why it's good for us. It's absolutely not. That's, can't we get a say in this? absolutely not. Yeah, and not, listen, then I get, like, nitpicky, right? Because then you don't like something. Then I'm just looking at his campaign announcement. Like, his website's all green and blue because he's, like, he's trying to do the environmental angle. Mm -hmm. And it just looks like one of those blocky T-shirts that, like, the kids in middle school wore in the 90s. Like, it's just kind <laughs> <laughs> it's just got, I'm just saying, so it's got that annoying. same energy right there. So I'm getting a little nitpicky with him. A lot of New Yorkers have a lot of feelings. Yeah. There's so much more he could do. And also, primary is just annoying. Like, I, we're going to have to listen to him, like, trying to relate to farmers. And, and I just, I just hate it. It just is. Him small. and Beto just trying to be taller than one another. Just, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be standing on counters. You're totally right. <laughs> oh my God. It's going to be horrible. Well, let's take our ire to the timeline. What would you rather see Bill de Blasio work on? A lot of options there. Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Fix the MTAs. As Ben Max, our first guest this morning, puts it, de Blasio launches underdog campaign for the presidency with pitch as progressive executive and mixed record. It's a tall-ass underdog. Uh, <laughs> ben Max, executive editor of the Gotham Gazette, joins us now. Ben, good morning. Good morning. Why? Why is this happening? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking. I don't know that there's really any constituency out there that says that this is a good idea or that they want Mayor Bill de Blasio in the race. As you noted, 
there's already 22 candidates, a lot of better known names, a former vice president, sitting U.S. senators. Um, there just doesn't seem to be a big appetite for this, but the mayor is banking on the idea that he can impress some people and create an appetite. Mm. Okay, let's ask this. What does he stand to lose mm. if he doesn't get the nomination? So the biggest thing I can identify, and I don't think there's that much actually for him to lose here, and I think you hit on this when you were talking a little bit about you know why he might be doing this, First of all, I genuinely think he thinks that he might be able to pull this off. I think he knows he's a big underdog, but I think he has confidence in the fact that he was an underdog in his first mayoral run and he pulled it off and he's never lost an election. And he has a lot of confidence, some of it misplaced, some of it real, uh, in his abilities as a politician. So I think he thinks he might be able to do something here. In terms of the risk, the biggest thing I can identify is that many New Yorkers already feel like he is checked out. They feel like even before pursuing another elected office while being mayor, that he does not pay enough attention to running the city day to day. And this will only push more people into that category and really cement that for him as a long-term legacy. And he's only got a couple years left. So his legacy is largely formed and being decided here in these final months and years. And he really risks damaging that long-term legacy. Mm, I'd hate for it to get any worse. Um, well, <laughs> to the point of what I was saying before about like, listen, he also can't be in two places at once. And as you were saying, he's checked out and he's going to be even more so literally checked out. He's going to have to hit the campaign trail. Listen, you focus on reporting here in New York City. Can you point to uh, some of the immediate impacts? Like who's going to become more influential in New York City politics, for example, when he steps away? Sure. So first, Deputy Mayor Dean Foulihan, who used to be this mayor's budget director and, and got a promotion when the previous first deputy mayor left, he will be running the day-to-day -day of the city, although in many ways he already is. Um, so the first deputy mayor, the other deputy mayors will, of course, be pitching in. Uh, he has a slew of them for different things like housing and economic development and operations. So, you know, a lot of running the city, as it already does, falls to the deputy mayors. However, uh, this mayor will be out of town, obviously, a bit more as he pursues this, if not a lot more. And there are real questions about whether decisions will be made, the processes for making those decisions, and you know whether the mayor needs to be here as sort of the, the figurehead and the leader of the city. All right, I have a question. Like, listen, here in New York, we critique him all the time, and there seems to be a lot to choose from. What's it going to look like? Is it dangerous for him even that he's actually up in his level here and he's going to be under the eye of national scrutiny? No, I actually think it's almost a little bit the reverse. I think mm. that he will get more attention in this campaign, at least early on, for any policy proposals that he puts out there and a little bit less for the record that we all know very well who follow him closely in New York or who live in New York City and are familiar with the ways that the city he is running or not running well. I think, you know, especially being an underdog and coming in at 1% in some of the polls or 0% in some of the polls, you know, the attention he might get is if he's putting bold proposals on the table uh, or, or he's critiquing some of the others in the race. And it, it'll be very interesting to see how he does that because, as you mentioned, he might be angling for a cabinet position. So I don't know that he really wants to go after Joe Biden that much. Um, so, so we'll see about that. But his record really does, of course, need to be dissected closely. We obviously try to do that. We tried to do that in our story about his announcement. And folks covering him across the country should really look at both some of the successes, which he has some, and, of course, you know, the major failures and crises that we have in the city.
Yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of been through it because you guys are so good at what you do. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Uh, Kirsten Baptiste just tweeted that she's glad, and she lives in Texas. She said, I'm glad the Houston mayor ain't running because, phew, yeah. (laughs) No more mayors, no more mayors. All right, uh, here's a tweet from the New York Times. As the NRA lavished pay and perks on its leaders and partners, it's increasingly relied on its own charity for funds. Tax experts have questions. New York Times reporter Danny Hakem, who wrote this story, joins us now. Good morning, Danny. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Listen, in your piece, you say that the National Rifle Association's annual convention in Indianapolis devolved into civil war. What's causing the rift? Well, uh, there's been a sort of a simmering fight that's been going on for months. It really goes back to the attorney general of New York, Tish James. She, even before she was elected, she started threatening to investigate the NRA's tax-exempt status uh, the New York attorney, attorney General has jurisdiction because the NRA was founded in New York almost 150 years ago. So the NRA really took that seriously, uh, and they began an internal audit of their uh, contractors. And one of their contractors refused to turn over their financial records, and that set in motion a whole series of internal squabbles within the group that that burst out in the open at their convention last month. Mm-hmm. I won't pretend to not be enjoying this. The tea is just delicious. Um, and you, you point to the rift and different people kind of turning on each other, a lot of leaks. Can you point to some examples of, of the fallout of all of this? Well, there's been a lot of leaks that have come out uh, in the last few days. I mean, the two major figures in the rift are Oliver North, who was the the president of the NRA. He's obviously like a figure from the Iran-Contra hearings from the Reagan era. And Wayne LaPierre, who's been the longtime head of the NRA. Um, North called on uh, LaPierre to resign. He said if he didn't, uh, he was going to... uh, you know, make known some some damaging uh, details or a, a company he works for is going to make known some damaging details about LaPierre. And in the last few weeks, we've seen some of those details come to light, details about uh, LaPierre spending $275,000 at a Beverly Hills clothing boutique, uh, all sorts of travel expenses all over the world, uh, billed through an NRA contractor, um, and then there's been you know, leaks about North, you know, he, he held the presidency of the NRA is usually a ceremonial job, but he had a, a contract that was said to be worth millions. Um, so there's been a lot of, um, a lot of mud thrown around on all sides here. So there's a lot of funny money and there's a lot of leaders basically <laughs> taking swings at one another, but that's like, that's the leadership situation. What are some of the other signs of stress in the NRA, right? They have this fight going on, but there's other things. Memberships are down. What else about the NRA is looking a little shaky right now? Yeah, I and mean, I think kind of the most interesting thing is, is this has revealed uh, the depth of their financial issues. Their, uh, their membership dues, uh, the last time they reported them, were at their lowest rate uh, in a half a decade. Um, They've, they've, they have a high cost structure in terms of the salaries they pay. The, the executives like LaPierre are very well compensated. Uh, so they've done things like they, they took out a $25 million line of credit a few years ago. They used their headquarters in Northern Virginia to secure that line of credit. And it's almost tapped out. So you know what my story the other day was really about is they've had to use 
a charity they set up um, to, almost as a lifeline. Uh, they, you know, after they they tapped out their line of credit, they took out a five million dollar loan from this charity, and you know, in the in the attorney general's investigation, that's the kind of thing that will probably be looked at because. Uh, anytime you you take money out of a charity, there's a lot of rules about what you can and can't do with that money. Right. Um, you know that, of course, this crisis and the investigation is ongoing. Letitia James, uh, Attorney General of New York, is just getting started. But I want to listen, um, and I've seen this in New York Times reporting on the NRA recently. Listen, there have been times when they've been in crisis and the organization's been actually very good at kind of rallying or even using the crisis to drum up more finance and more support. So is this a uh, once in a generation crisis? Is this a true turning point for the NRA? Well, it's a good question. I mean, and they do have, they seem to have crises every 20 years or so. Um, I think that, you know, one thing that's different now is that the gun control movement is better financed and more motivated than probably it's ever been. And in, in the midterms last year, the, the gun control movement outspent the NRA, which really doesn't happen um, very often, if ever. So this time around, you know, they really have, you know, a dedicated and well-financed opposition. So that's what that's what changes the game a bit this time. You know, I don't think the NRA is going anywhere. They certainly, they'll always have a, they have a committed base and they'll always have, you know, a certain amount of money to draw from, from their donors and their members. So, I, I you know, I don't think they're going away, but um, they definitely have a, a stronger opposition than they've had in a while. Right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your reporting. It is really, really interesting. Thanks, Dan. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right. Well, listen, we've got another great show for you today. Legend Margot Martindale is here. I'm so excited to watch you talk with her. Very excited. I want her to play me in a movie. <laughs> but up next, it's Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. Let's get into it. One of those montage romantic comedy movie makeovers, but instead of coming out hot, I just want to come out with a great credit score and 2020 vision. <laughs> Amen! Cranberry song playing in the back as you're like checking your finances. Feeling good. That's feeling it. Good. You're just walking down the steps, your parents are looking up at you. Oh my god, can't believe you changed. It's like, ah, yes, I've got my finances Ooh, in order. Coming down the staircase. <laughs> All right, this next tweet comes from Michael. 35 years old and have not yet received a call to adventure, and I'm starting to worry I'm not a protagonist. Ooh, that is <laughs> Michael. Don't worry, man. I feel like Bilbo Baggins was pretty old when uh, when people he? came a knocking. Yeah, I think that's. I think Hobbits lived for a long time. Sorry, Michael, you're a minor character. I think there's still hope for you, Michael. It's gonna be okay. You're a red coat. <laughs> I'm not gonna hit it yet. A little Star Trek, a little Thank Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. You. You're gonna, you're the range, I've got it. You're gonna get down on the planet's surface and they're gonna zap you. All right, Ariel, you tweeted announcement volcanoes and canoes should rhyme. That's just true. Volcanoes. 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 This next tweet comes from Ginny. See if I can redo it without laughing. Jenny tweeted, sometimes I don't even get my own jokes until men explain them back to me on Twitter. So you see here, the joke is, the thing that she's saying is, and it's, and look at Jenny's picture. Saying, <laughs> she's fed up. That is a really She's funny. fed up. It is, uh, and we're sorry. 
Respect. I'm not putting no. mine on the Just for the state of the world. Just for the state of the world. I'm you ready sorry. to do this tweet of the day? Let's do it. so funny. Okay. Tweet of the day comes from Lil Arab. I have made the executive decision that I'm going to die before learning what 0% APR financing is. To which I say same. To which I say same. We learned it this morning. And I APR financing? Who needs it? I think actually we probably all do. It'd be very nice. It's got something to do with credit cards, I think. Advanced placement. No, annual something. Don't worry about oh, it. Oh, annual percent. Annual percentage rate. I Someone just, told us that. I'm not going to. It's fine. All right, coming up next, we're going live from the district. But up next, uh, we're going to be talking about the wave of abortion bans. We didn't forget, y'all. Absolutely. Trust us. This is the conversation on the timeline. We just had to warm up first. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. All these six-week abortion bans are likely to get blocked by the courts. That's the point. They're part of a concerted effort to get the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Emma O'Connor, who wrote that story, joins us now to talk about it. Emma, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, this morning, the Missouri Senate passed an eight-week ban. In the last few weeks, we've seen similar bans in Ohio, Georgia and Alabama, they passed restrictive abortion bans. Why is this happening now? So first of all, it's not brand new. Um, the first heartbeat law, so a ban after six weeks of pregnancy, was passed in 2013 in North Dakota. And it's sort of steadily been happening since then. And they've all been sued and blocked in the courts, and none of them have gone into law. But what's new recently is the law in Alabama is a total ban. Like, that's, that has never really passed before. It's definitely never gotten into law before. It's very illegal. Um, also, the speed with which it's happening and kind of the uh, fervor and the, the force with which anti-abortion advocates are really pushing this legislation is new. And it's because they see the Supreme Court as friendly to them and more likely to overturn Roe v. Wade than ever before in history. So they're trying to get past these laws, which they know are going to be blocked in courts and sued by uh, abortion rights advocates, and then they will appeal them until they get to the Supreme Court in the hopes that then abortion, uh, sorry, Roe v. Wade will be overturned and abortion will be um, illegal or restricted in many states across the country. So a surgical strike with like a, obviously a clear thinking behind it, and it's happening, like you said, very fast. How is this putting abortion rights advocates in a difficult position? So they're in a bit of a catch-22 because they, if they don't sue, uh, then the, these really restrictive laws will take um, effect in those states. And then women in Georgia and Alabama won't be able to access abortions. But if they do sue, then it's more likely to go before the Supreme Court and overturn Roe v. Wade. So they say, the ones that I've spoken to so far, say that it's just they have to do it. They can't let um, people in certain states not be able to access abortion because that basically is itself an overturning of Roe v. Wade. Got it. And but the actual by suing, that means that it might get to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. How likely is it that the Supreme Court might overturn Roe v. Wade? So that's sort of up for debate. Um, a lot of the advocates that I've been talking to say that they have a lot of faith in how uh, old the precedent of Roe v. Wade is. It was passed in 1973, and the Supreme Court has a history of really respecting precedent um, and not overturning one that has been reaffirmed in many cases since then. But recently, uh, a number of very old 40-year-old cases have been overturned by the Supreme Court. And um, Justice Breyer, who's a liberal Supreme Court justice, even said that he 
kind of, in his dissent, he said that he thought that Roe v. Wade could be at risk in, in so many words. Could you talk just a little bit more about that? Because I keep seeing Breyer's name coming up. Why is that such a big deal? It's a really big deal because it's the first time that a Supreme Court justice has sort of indicated that. So it was a, uh, it was a Supreme Court decision um, that had to do with being able to sue states from another state. So if you're in Nebraska, you can sue California from Nebraska. Um, they overturned that decision, which was 40 years old. Uh, and th this was a decision from Trump's appointees and the rest of the, the conservative majority. And Justice Breyer wrote a dissent to that. And in that dissent, he said, this was overturned for no reason, and we should be concerned because this means that they could overturn anything with irrespective of, of precedent. And he even cited Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which actually... Um, reaffirmed Roe v. Wade. So it was really like a flare that he sent out. A flare, and, and that's why so many people are feeling like it's time to take action. Listen, you, you mentioned that the ACLU and other groups are obviously going to fight this in the courts. So what's next? How long will it take these laws that are passed in these states to basically bubble up their way through the court system? It's going to take a while. Uh, the law is slow. Um, things take months and months. I, I wouldn't I don't think it's going to be taken up by the Supreme Court within a year. It's probably more than that. Um, the Supreme Court is in a term of deciding right now. Their next one isn't until October. Uh, but it's unlikely that they will take up an abortion case in October. So it's still, we have a few years to go um, as everything moves through the courts and the Supreme Court decides whether or not to take one up. Okay, real quick, how are presidential candidates responding to this slew of bans? Like, I, again, I just, this is the conversation. It seems that so many people are focused on it. How are the people that want to win the White House responding? So yesterday I spoke to Cory Booker um, on the phone when he was driving around New York, and uh, he is he's very upset. I think a lot of the 2020 Democrats are really upset. They're all pretty pro-choice, um, some more than others. But Cory Booker specifically is calling for legislation in Congress um, that would actually make Roe v. Wade the law of the land no matter what the Supreme Court does. So he made this interesting pledge, which has never really been said before because it's never been this real before, where if he became president and Roe v. Wade had been overturned, then he would make it law of the land and kind of override the Supreme Court. All right, well, listen, you tweeted, it has come to my attention that a lot of people think that abortion is now illegal in Alabama. This is not the case. Abortion is still legal in all 50 states and will be until the Supreme Court decides otherwise. So Emma, what is the effect of the kind of misinformation that you're seeing out there that it's like these bans are going to affect immediately? So the, it's directly impacting women who have scheduled abortions and women who need one because um, a source of mine at Planned Parenthood in Georgia actually said that people have been calling up and saying, hey, is my appointment canceled because abortion's illegal here now? Um, it's not. It's not. It's The law hasn't gone into effect, and it's not going to because they're going to be sued and it's going to be blocked. So, so far, everything is the same. Um, and the misinformation is really, it's creating a panic that's actually directly impacting people's ability to get abortions. To get the health care that they deserve. Emma, thank you so much for your reporting, and thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Listen, up next, we're going live from the district to talk a little bit more about all the things that are fucked up in D.C. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Nitty Prakash. Good morning, Nitty. 
Hello, good morning. Hey, girl. All right, here's a tweet from you, Nitty. Uh, Molly Hensley Clancy and I talked to the activists who built the movement to abolish ICE and saw 2020 Democrats champion their cause last summer, only to then walk back their positions and mostly stop talking about it on the campaign trail. It, which I remember, right? It seemed like Abolish Ice was this giant conversation oh, that was happening. At least on Twitter. Absolutely. And then it seemed to mm-hmm. kind of just disappear. So mm-hmm. what's happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was a moment, right? And so several of the 2020 Dems came out in favor of it and sort of gave interviews saying, yes, definitely, we've got to get rid of this agency. And then in the months that followed, we saw basically all of them kind of like quietly walk it back or just completely stop talking about it. Yeah. And, and how are they kind of getting away with that? Because, you know, often waffling, going back and forth isn't something that candidates right. want to be called out for. Right. Right. I mean, look, the activists who are behind this movement are angry and disappointed. Um, but I think that the underlying thing here is that the policy kind of didn't poll super well. It's not super popular uh, in polls. And then the other thing is that it was something that the Republicans immediately jumped on as um, sort of a means of attacking Democrats right before the midterms. Mm. So we saw them really coming out in full force, kind of using abolish ICE in all of their attack ads um, and also talking about open borders as part of that. And that's something that Democrats were super sensitive to. Okay, so Nitty, let's name names, though. Who was super vocal mm. about it, mm. who is now being very quiet about it? Mm-hmm. So over the summer, there was... Uh, Gillibrand, Warren, uh, Sanders, and uh, there was one other as well. So it was a handful of the 2020 Dems who definitely came out in full force agreeing with this and then either just stopped talking about it or walked it back. Kamala Harris was the other one. And we saw with candidates like Gillibrand and Harris that they kind of, after saying this, sort of went went into saying, no, actually what I meant was that I want to restructure it, Um, that I want to restructure it and sort of like reconsider how this agency works, which is to the activists who were kind of like, have been working on this issue for a long time is not at all what they wanted to see out of this conversation. Right. Um, And and that's interesting to me because they are in a primary where they are literally trying to appeal to as many people on the left as possible. Um, So did you hear um, or Mm -hmm. were you able to talk to any of these candidates, particularly that four or five, um, about how they are trying to navigate? Because to me, that sounds like you just disappointed or pissed Mm -hmm. off a lot of possible primary voters. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we didn't get a lot back from the campaigns. Um, Gillibrand's campaign kind of, uh, again, walked it back, just kind of sticking to that line that actually what she meant was, uh, here's her plan to kind of restructure it, um, which kind of like splits up its duties into other agencies or renames it, which is something that a lot of advocates that we spoke to were really angry about because it's one of them phrased it as uh, basically sticking a Democrat sticker on it and painting it blue. Um, which they were not happy to happy to hear at all. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign sent us a kind of a generic statement saying that she thinks the immigration system is problematic, uh, and we didn't hear back from the other two. And you didn't hear back from the other two. Okay, so that's the candidates. Real quick before we move on, Nitty, uh, you obviously talked to activists. You said that they're angry, but what are some real specifics? What did you hear, and how are they hoping to move, uh, you know, their campaign forward? Right. I mean, I think that the sense that I got from a lot of those activists is that. They're not shocked that this is happening. They have been let down by Democrats on immigration before. Um, I think that the very kind of like vocal rush to the left and rush to get behind this maybe uh, got their hopes up, got a little bit of publicity to this issue. But I I think honestly that a lot of them see this as a pattern 
um, but Democrats have just not been able to get their acts together to get, uh, you know, a solid policy platform around immigration together. Mm. All right. Well, moving on, here's a tweet from John Pasatino. New photos show migrant families detained outdoors at a makeshift border patrol encampment in Texas. We were all piled on top of each other on the pavement, a 14-year-old said. My goodness. So, Nitty, what... Can we leave that photo up for me? Yeah, let's leave that up. What do we know about the conditions at the Border Patrol station in McAllen, Texas? Mm -hmm. So we've seen those photos, and then our reporter Adolfo actually spoke to some of the people that were being held in those conditions, and uh, they said, you know, it's exactly what you said, that they're being forced to sleep outside. Uh, One woman said that her and her kids had to sleep outside in the rain with just one of those kinds of emergency tinfoil blankets, basically. Um, You know, other people were sleeping on the ground. There was, uh, they were given soggy sandwiches as the only kind of food that they were offered. They were woken up pre-dawn just to get a head count. So like these kids who are trying to sleep outside on the ground and then, you know, in the middle of the night in the darkness being woken up. Um, So, I mean, it it sounds like a pretty horrific situation. Absolutely. And I I do just want to say this is not totally disconnected from the abolish Mm -hmm. ICE Mm -hmm. uh, conversation that all of these 2020 candidates have moved on from. These families can. Mm -hmm. Um, I did want to ask, how did CNN obtain these photos? I mean, they're not just powerful. They're also Mm -hmm. like newsworthy. Mm -hmm. So apparently what happened is that someone who works at this facility saw what was going on and was just kind of horrified and disturbed at what they were seeing. Oh, wow. Um, And so they leaked the photos to CNN. And then, you know, I mean, CNN and our reporter as well kind of went to CBP and said, are these authentic? And CBP couldn't deny it. They said, yes, this is real kind of thing. So someone who worked there was so horrified. Yeah, and so, but this is this this is this one area. Can I ask, just in general, can we talk a little bit? This is like our like we've been talking about. This is a story that kind of comes up and then can sometimes go away. What's the situation at the borders right now, especially family members who have been Mm -hmm. separated? Yeah, I mean, there are still a lot of people at the border on both sides, kind of in limbo, basically. A lot of people aren't having their applications processed. There's that kind of like backlog that's been created there as well. Um, And the facilities are overcrowded. I mean, this is one example of the way that immigration enforcement is handling the fact that it's overcrowded. Wow. Okay, well, we will leave it there for now. Nidhi, as always, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Up next, I sit down with, you might know her from Bojack Horseman as character actress Margot Martindale. She, of course, has been on Justified, The Americans, and she's on Sneaky Pete. Excited to talk to her. my queens. I'm excited to be joined by Emmy Award-winning actor Margot Martindale. You know her from The Americans, BoJack Horseman, The Act, Justified. I'm just like... And now, of course, she's on Amazon's show, Sneaky Pete. Good morning. Good morning. morning. How are you? I love it. I'm good. Um, So Sneaky Pete's third season just premiered. Yes. Um, And and you play someone who's gotten conned, Audrey, but it it looks like we're going to be seeing a different side of her. Is that fair to say? You're going to see a deeper... uh, uh, edgier, more um, more criminal side of her. I think. Ooh. I think we're doing a lot of we're doing a lot of we're we're sort of in on a lot of cons this okay. year. Okay. It's a it's a great season. We're very very excited about it, uh-huh. and uh, people and we love each other. My this group of actors. Oh so, really? That's yeah, good. We just love each other. I love it. Yeah. I mean, so this is something I wanted to ask when it, when a character develops over the course of seasons, because you know your character starts as just a victim, innocent, nice. Being taken advantage. Well, of. not really. Oh, okay. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, do, did you know from the very beginning that her character was going to develop in this way, or is it something you have to kind of figure out? Well, you know what? You kind of have to lead them. Okay. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And kind of like yeah. and, develop um, those shades. Yes. And you, you know, you, some writers work one way and some writers work another. Uh-huh. Uh, but they uh, take what they see, mm-hmm. a lot of them, and build oh, on okay. that. So I you like can that. actually give them a little something uh-huh. that you want where you would like to go. Go like there's some potential here. For yes, this exactly. Kind of Storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, of course, you know, we talk about this all the time on the show. Scammers and I mean from Fire Festival, college admissions, I mean, even the act, you know, there it's uh it is a narrative people are very interested in and cons. Um, why do you think we're so drawn to it right now? Uh, I think that uh, people uh, people, there's so many liars <laughs> in the world. Uh-huh. And, true, And true. we're always trying to seek the truth and mm-hmm. what's really behind that. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think it's always been. It right. just has come, you know, because we have television, we have media, we have right. everything to show us mm-hmm. what people have been, yeah. yeah. But people are interested in all that. Absolutely. Now, the act, they're, well, that was a big... Yeah, that's a little different. Would you call that a scam? Well, she- I, well it was a... It was a I think a sickness, mm-hmm. but she believed. She believed. She believed it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so of course, you know, one of my favorite roles that you've played uh, was on The Americans as as a spy, and and I love the idea of you know seemingly unassuming, you know, people may be way more dangerous than we realized. Uh, do you think you could be a spy in real life? Yes. <laughs> well, I am a spy. In I just real heard life. the control room gas. You, you are a spy in real life. I am. Margot I Martindale's am. your cover girl. Mar- Margot Martindale. <laughs> Block spy. <laughs> what's one good spy? I couldn't do it if I tried, but what's one good like spy tip? Well, uh, um, you know, watch how people do their eyes. Which way they look up? Or are they lying? Oh. Which way? And I think this way is a lie. Okay. I think I've heard that. Okay. And this way is the truth. So you like look direct, straight so on. So I, I never look like this, <laughs> even when I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> screaming, screaming. Um, what, what was it like being on The Americans? Because, of course, it's about, you know, in, during the height of the Cold War and Russia and, and the United States. But just what it was like, particularly towards the end of the show's run. Well, it was just run. a magnificent run yeah. and a beautifully written show and a, and a classy, mm-hmm. subtle, mm-hmm. gorgeous ending. Yeah. That was yeah. in keeping with those writers, yeah. Joe, I, Joe Weisberg and Joel, yeah. Joel Fields. I think The Americans has literally the best pilot I've ever seen and the best finale I've ever seen. Pretty pretty fantastic yeah. finale. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I didn't realize that Carrie Russell uh, and Matthew fell in love on set. I just assumed... Season one. Really? So were you watching that happen in real time? Kind of. Really? Yes, kind of was. Yes. I love and this. And very happy when I really just, when I found the secret out. Was there a point where you were like kind of having to keep the secret or pretend? No, no. Okay. I just was in, I, I was in that hair and makeup trailer asking lots of questions. <laughs> I love <laughs> it so much. Doing a little much. spy work. Screaming. I, I love when you were like, don't look to the left, don't look to the right. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah, they're d- d- darling, wonderful people and great together. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, on Bojack Horseman, uh, they kind of play with your, because uh, your IMDb is not to be fucked with, girl. Okay, you've done it. Hey, hey! <laughs> <laughs> you have done it. And so they turn it into like Margot Martindale character actress, right? And But I, I did want to ask you, how do you feel about that term character actor? Does it? 
I think all actors are character actors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even understand why anybody would be insulted by that. Mm. Because if you're doing a part, mm -hmm. you are playing a character mm -hmm. that hopefully will have different, different qualities than you have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Ideally. <laughs> ideally, you want to be different people. Right. Yeah. So. I love it. I think it's, a, I, th I love that title. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're all about it. Well, to that point, I mean, you've played so many different types of characters. Is there a character uh, or a type of character you would like to get to play? I'm looking, I think, to play now. Uh, well, I'm doing a lot of, I'm going to play okay. Bella Abzug. On uh, the uh, on Mrs. America. Oh, with, I was going to ask about with that. Kate Blanchett, which okay. is a different because it's all about a different, a totally different person okay. than me. Uh -huh. I, uh, 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 New York uh, orth grew up Orthodox Jew. Okay, and um, complete different accent, which mm. will be it's, it's it's it'll be a real nice challenge for me. <laughs> I mean, the Americans, I don't have this accent, uh -huh. but all I did for that was not try not to have this accent. So I sounded, just kind of deadened it. <laughs> so I sounded like I was speaking foreign tongue. <laughs> Scream. And so I, I'm dying because we're both from Texas, from different parts of Texas, and the Texas accent is not too easy you don't to... Have, you don't have much of one. You know, I took it out behind that shed, girl, and I killed it. <laughs> Actually, I just watched a lot of news when I was growing up. I That's what... And, and also your age, it helps. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And also, I was, I was from East Texas, mm -hmm. a town kind of cut all by itself, mm -hmm. Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. and, Jacksonville, uh, Texas. Jacksonville, Texas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were... And I grew up in the 50s and 60s, mm. so... Very different time. Incredible, incredible. Um, I, I wanted to ask, as someone who has seized so many different kinds of acting opportunities right now, and I'm obsessed with TV. I got to say, I watch like every TV show. Do you? Yes, I, too much, too much TV. Um, there is so much television, right, because of all of these different platforms. I mean, Sneaky Pete's on Amazon Prime, you know, so they're just, how has that kind of impacted your life as an actor? Has it? Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I don't. I guess, I guess there are a lot more opportunities. Okay, like scripts, just like. Yeah, there yeah. really, truly. Okay. A lot, a lot, a lot. I love that. Well, tell us about Mrs. America, because I mean, first of all, when I hear Margot Martindale and Kate Blanchett, I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> and then we have Rose Byrne. Uh, I, I think I saw Uzo Doba is in it as well. What, what, what is Mrs. America about? It's about the, uh, uh, the women's movement in the 70s. Oh, shit. Yes. Uh. What a week to be talking about that. Incredible. It's incredible. It's a, wow. a very important mm -hmm. uh, subject. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When, when does that come out? When, when do we. I, I think it won't, I don't think it'll premiere until the spring of next year. Okay. Okay. Because you know me, I'm like, we need this tomorrow. Girl. No, right. but yeah, oh. we, we're just, we haven't even started shooting yet. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, you are like, I have to work on that accent. I've, so. been, I've already been working for a month and a half. <laughs> Do you practice at home? Yeah. Okay. You're just like walking around your house? Yeah. I love it. I love and it. listening to her speak. Oh, okay. Okay. It helps have a real Because we have a lot of real, you know, that. we have a lot of real people who were orators. Cool. Yeah, I so love that was you. good. Well, you have made me a very proud Texan. Uh, and oh, I'm so you're excited so sweet. You've that. made me a proud Texan. Oh, thank you. You're thank welcome. You. I love it. Guys, you can watch Margot on season three of Sneaky Pete. Audrey's yes. coming for you on please, Amazon Prime. Please do. Look out. Absolutely. Get ready. Get yeah, ready. Yeah, yeah. Up next, uh, Sylvia's going to talk about women in hip hop.
Hey, you tweeted, is it safe? It's safe to say another woman rapper era is upon us because, woo, Tierra Whack, Megan Thee Stallion, Rico Nasty, The City Girls, Cash Doll, Dreezy, Dej Loaf, and I could keep going. I am loving it. Kathy E. Andoli, hip-hop expert and author of the forthcoming book, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop, joins me now to talk about the female, female rappers finally getting the respect they deserve. Hi. How's it going? Hi. Good. I love that book title. <laughs> so hip-hop has been a slanted a slanted playing field for men forever. You know, misogyny is so into that genre as it is. But we're finally starting to see the change coming with this wave of female rappers. Not that they haven't been there, but they're finally on the charts, on the radio. Can you talk about, like, why this seems to be happening right now? Well, I feel like it's just this culmination of what had been happening over the past 10 years. I mean, if we look back at, like, 2008 to 2009, when Nicki Minaj first hit the scene, right? She had that spot locked as a solo female hip-hop artist for, what, a solid eight, nine years, even 10 if you're talking 2008, right? Yeah. Sometime in between then, we had social media really give that boom, like that Instagram whole movement that was sort of happening. And in, the, in that time, you know, Cardi B went viral. Mm-hmm. It's on Love and Hip Hop. We're won over by Cardi B's personality. So Cardi B's hip hop career then gets bolstered by that. And what you're seeing now is just this like widening of the lane based upon the fact that through the social media, through Cardi B, all of these things, it's now offering us this opportunity for just a lot of women to come through and just really do their thing. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought that up because for so long it felt like Nikki was the only one we were hearing on the radio. But I do think that what you're saying about Cardi's impact being how she made social media a place for us to see their personalities really thrive. Um, because I want to talk about some of the new people who are coming up, and they all kind of fall into that lane, like Young Miami and JT, also known as City Girls. Like, we love them for their vibrant personality. Um, can you talk about why people are so into their music? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's also just like this perfect storm, right? I mean, if we're looking at it from a music industry perspective, City Girls are also signed to quality control music, which is the management company for Cardi B. Mm-hmm. So you're having that that crew love there. Um, an artist like Lizzo, who started out in um, a, a series of, you know, indie hip hop groups. Lizzo's on the same label as Cardi, Atlantic Records. You're, you're seeing this, this music industry business model coming to form. But then outside of that, you have a whole other bunch of artists that are now inspired. I mean, it was crazy. When I interviewed City Girls um, about a year ago, you know, I was talking with, um, with uh, <laughs> I was going to say JT, but um, well, actually, I did talk to her over, um, over email, but, um, you know, Risha, Young Miami, she was discussing how her mother used to play little Kim's hardcore for her. Mm. As a kid, like, she used to hear it. Not like, here, listen to this, but it's like yeah. she would listen to this. And you now have this generation of young artists whose parents were listening to hip hop during that era where we had all of those women present, like this, that huge slew of arguably the last time we had that many women in the space at one time. Right. So really younger artists are just replicating the things that their parents remembered happening. 
Yeah. You know, I'm playing all of these artists. And then you got an artist like Trina, who's been aggressively consistent. And most of the new artists credit Trina. Trina comes out on the scene and she's just showing so much girl power and um, really mentoring a lot of these girls. So you have your matriarch who's, who's also just supporting the newer artists. Yeah. These newer artists are all coming out just doing their thing and just bringing just a different energy. And, you know, I don't, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like a lot of the guys in hip hop should really be scared because if you think about, <laughs> you think about the top like artists right now, like I know who I'm checking for is Megan Thee Stallion. Right. And you I'm know? so glad you brought up Megan because I agree. They should be fearing these females they because Megan be so is also somebody whose mother who just recently yep. passed this past year, um, was involved in the hip hop industry. And, you know, you, you can see that Megan's roots are deep. And, you know, she's always talking about hot girl shit, talk, you know, crediting Trina. They were just at Rolling Loud this past weekend doing their thing together. Um, can you talk about her rise and, you know, and how she's gotten so high up in the ranks as well? Because I do think she is a perfect example of everything you were just talking about. Well, I feel like, you know, Megan the Stallion is kind of like, um, what is that, like Voltron? Like, or, or like a Captain America? Like a combination of everything that, like, we've loved about just hip-hop in general, but also, you know, women in hip-hop. I mean, she, her mother, you know, God rest her soul, was a person who was in the studio mentoring her. She's really the first offspring of a female hip-hop artist to be a hip-hop artist. Yeah. Right? The first. Yeah. So... You're coming with this, you know, and her mother had just like this strong regional flair, you know, coming up in Texas. So she's got just the um, that, that Texan edge to her, to her rhymes. But she also has the sex positive stuff. But she also has the ability to sit there and say, listen, you know, lyrically, I'm better than most people. And I'm, and I'm not afraid to, you know, I'm not afraid to put that out there. She's gorgeous. She's like model-esque. Yeah, so she's, there's so many different things that are just playing um, in Megan's favor, but then on top of it all, she's just that good. Yeah, and I think another thing, I just did a, my first cover story on Lizzo for Essence Magazine, and I... Oh I spoke to her about just the unapologetic ethos of this um, age of hip hop, you know, women in hip hop and all of these things. Because I think something City Girls, Meg Thee Stallion, Lizzo, Cardi all have in common. Even Nicki was doing it. But like they're coming in like this is ours for the taking. They're not asking. They're in our face with their personalities, brash, all of these things. Their lyrics are like that. They're like exuding confidence in a way we've never seen, you know. And I think that really has to do with like the ethos of the millennial generation that they're a part of. Absolutely. And let's not forget the fact that for so many decades prior, women were made to feel like they were to be ashamed of certain things. Like, you know, the little Kim Foxy Brown era, they were so brazen with how they felt about sex and sexuality, but the, the response was shaming them, right? And there were so many other female artists who felt like they had to keep certain aspects of their personality really under wraps. There was, there was a lot of secrecy that was going on. And a lot of these artists, I think Cardi B was really the one to break that mold. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, just coming out and saying, no, this is who I am. I'm completely honest. I'm keeping it real. And and if she's she's maintaining that ethos of keeping it real, which is truly the essence of hip hop, you know, when so many people um, had something to say about Cardi when she came out, it's like, but she's keeping it real. Isn't isn't that the whole point of doing this? <laughs> you know, right. so that's the whole like, point. Well, thank isn't that you. Where I started. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. Well, thank you for joining us, Kathy. God save oh the queens. The essential history of women in hip hop is out in October. Next up, we read your tweets.
We're just having Sophia. We, we're just going rogue. Listen, Why it's not? basically, we want. tomorrow will be the last week, basically. That'll be the <laughs> second to last Friday for me and Saeed. So we're going to, it's going to start being a little fun around here. Y'all thought I was wilding out before. Oh, she's about to go out with a bang. <laughs> Queen Latifah but, set it off. <laughs> Style. <laughs> See, I'm already out of the closet. Oh, All right, well. we wanted to know what you thought about Bill de Blasio. <laughs> <laughs> running for president and what he should be doing instead. GM Palmer, see, I told you. Look at you looking at me. GM Palmer <laughs> said he should be working on police reform, mm. sentencing reform, mm. drug legalization, mm. Medicare for all, mm. universal basic income. Can a mayor do all that? I'm just I'm saying that there's wait, a wait, lot wait, there. Listen, I like that. We're never going to get the subways fixed now. <laughs> That's all I know. Here's the thing. Maybe, <laughs> listen, never, maybe never this done. is a blessing. Because when we were talking to that guy earlier, he was talking about how the deputy mayor will now be like maybe. doing more, maybe. Maybe there's somebody in that administration that can fix the MTA and Bill de Blasio getting out of our hair might be the best thing that ever happened. What I what I think is maybe going to happen is that like I can see a scenario in which the maybe during the election for the next mayor of New York, it's literally all someone campaigns on. They're like all, like, like every, like, you know what I mean? Like, literally, I'm going to make the center of my entire platform (laughs) fixing the MTA. I'll vote for you. And that will be my legacy. I think think we would all vote to you. And speaking of that, (laughs) our own Ellie Hall answered, fix the subway. And Austin Hunt said, literally anything. Anything. Truly fix it. I like the idea. I like the idea of somebody running for mayor and they're just like, their their slogans, I'll stick around. I'll stick around. I'll, I'll be actually here. be in New York City. I'll be here. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do, including run for president, apparently. <laughs> we should just have guest stars for all of our edits. That's actually a really good idea. <laughs> this is a good time. We also talked about my queen, Margot Martindale. Mm. Michelle Stevens said Margot Martindale is a national treasure. I have a text message here from Tanya Melendez who said Margot Martindale is for sure one of the top five people she is super jealous I've gotten to talk to. She was a delight. 5,000%. She's been in everything. She is <laughs> Like, I was just, like, backstage, like, how many... You're just like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Like a CVS receipt. That's really wonderful. It's crazy. Protect her at all costs. (laughs) Not that she needs protection. She doesn't need it. Because she a badass. And let me tell you why. During the break, she told me that she's been living in New York for, like, 40 years in the same apartment. And I was like, don't ever leave. And she was like, actually, I use my spy skills that I learned on the Americans to spy on my neighbors. (laughs) Are you her neighbor? Where she I want to be very I mean, clear. I During the second, Saeed said, I would not be a good spy. Oh, and no. I appreciate that you own that. That's because you air people's laundry like that. She told you that off she camera. Kept that secret for 40 <laughs> and years. And you just, you just out here. Because Saeed Listen, before we go, we have a new <laughs> lower third t-shirt poll. Vote for Put all of those feelings in a group text next time. That is Ooh, very good wow. advice. Wow. Everyone knows the sexiest accents are not American. That's Amen. True. Trying to get some international buyers there. Mm. And we are so tired. Mm. Oh, that's the one. I like every single one of those. We are tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exhausted. But also group chats. Yes. You can never go wrong with group chats. Obsessed. There's a new article and I need to read it. Mm. I love group chats. I pity people who don't have them. Amen. Anyway, thank you to all of our wonderful guests. Uh, ben Max, Danny Hakem, Emma O'Connor, Nitty Prakash, Sylvia O'Bell, Kathleen Andoli. I'm excited to read her book. No, yeah, that, that, that was, was a, a great conversation. The cover title is I love just it. anyway. I love also, it. the brass knuckles as the love crown. So I good. absolutely so, love it. Oh, I'll have to go back and look at it. Okay. And Emmy Award winning queen, mm. Margo Martindale. Thank you all for joining us. Listen, we will be back here tomorrow. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. It's going to be our second to last Friday. Have a great rest of your day. The news is trash out there. Take mm. care of yourselves. Yeah, be Take good. care of yourselves. <laughs>